0: All right. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We give you thanks for this day that um, we can dive deep into your Word. It is a privilege. We pray that uh, your Spirit would open our minds, open our hearts, that we could see the wonder, the grandeur of your salvation. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so, uh, we this is our third class on the Book of Joel. <laughs> But uh, I've mostly ignored Joel. Um, So today I've I've really, we're just, all we're going to do is Joel. Uh, But as I've said before, the the main topic of Joel is eschatology. Uh, The main theme of Joel is um, something called the Day of the Lord. And I drew it graphically here for you. The Day of the Lord is this climactic event that is going to happen at the end of human history. And it's going to bring to resolution all of the problems, um, all of the promises, um, That is going to be this uh, happy ending, and then um, it's going to be this renewal of all creation, the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever. And that's what Joel is talking about. Um, in fact, that's a, a, a major theme in most of the prophets. The prophets are writing to God's people during a time of, great distress, moral decline. And so it's always looking forward to this resolution. So if you look at the structure of Joel, uh, this is the same structure that you see in most prophets, all the prophets, which is the first half is doom, and then the second half is God's grace. And right now we're in the middle of the doom section, which is that you have these two poems that are sort of in parallel to each other. Joel talks about this locust plague that comes and then a call to repentance. And then now, we're going to look at this invading army, uh, which is parallel to the locust plague. And then again, a call to repentance. And then we're going to look at God's response of grace. Okay? Um, so let's, let's begin with chapter 2, verse 1. So what I decided to do, by the way, is uh, <laughs> to my great sorrow, I decided to cut down and discard a great deal of my notes and comments that I wanted to make for the sake of time. So what I'll do is I'll just read the passage to you and occasionally I'll make comments and then occasionally I'll make extended comments, but, um, but that's the best we could do and I think we can make it all the way through. So verse chapter 2, verse 1. So here Joel is talking now, the second poem about this invading army that's about to come. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming it is near. And I just want to point out here that this trumpet sound is associated with the day of the Lord. We've actually looked at this last week. We saw this in that the First Thessalonians chapter 4 passage. Remember we said which is the rapture passage where Jesus is going to come um, and all uh, the believers who are still alive on earth are going to be caught up with him. There's a trumpet sound. We looked at First Corinthians chapter 15. Um, Paul's great chapter on the resurrection, there's a trumpet sound. And the reason why there's a trumpet sound on the day of the Lord is that the trumpet signals a battle. The trumpet signals this advance of an army. Uh, Verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The clouds and the darkness here are theophanies of God. Um, The word theophany simply means like a physical manifestation of God. If you remember, in the wilderness... Um, God drew near to his people in a pillar of cloud and darkness. There was darkness and clouds on Mount Sinai. Um, If you remember the Mount of Transfiguration, there was clouds and darkness. Do you guys remember in the Ascension? What what was surrounding Jesus in the Ascension when he returned to heaven? Clouds, right? It's not just like, oh, well, he's up in the uh, sky, so there must be clouds. These are all theophanies of God. So clouds represent... Or indicate that God's fearful presence is drawing near. Let's, let me continue reading. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will nor will be again after them, through the years of all the, of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before before them. But behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. So the comparison here to the Garden of Eden is very significant because you have to understand that the story of um, Israel is that they're brought to the Promised Land, and the Promised Land is like the Garden of Eden. That God's people are back in Eden. They're back in fellowship with God. God is, um, is, is in their midst, right, remember, in the Garden um, God would walk with Adam, and uh, in the Promised Land, God dwells with His people in the temple and the tabernacle. But then, what happens? This invading army, right, which is a result of disobedience, a, 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 a curse. The this invading army destroys Eden and turns it into a desolate wasteland. Verse four: Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble like a powerful army drawn up for battle. So what's going on here is that Joel is poetically describing this invading army like a locust plague. Right? It moves and acts like a locust plague. They march in formation. They're disciplined veteran soldiers. Verse 6, Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale." Like warriors, they charge. Like soldiers, they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through their weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. And then verse 10. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened. The stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is is great and very awesome. And who can endure it? So, remember the the, the thesis that I've been saying, the argument that I've, I've been saying, right, is that the day of the Lord is already upon us. Right? We are already inside the day of the Lord. Because remember I said that um, the ministry of Jesus inaugurated that day. So if the day of the Lord, which is this climactic ending of human history, is already here, and then the signs of the day of the Lord, it says in verse 10, are earthquakes, the sun and the moon are darkened. Right? These are signs of judgment, signs of the end of the world. Because the world is falling apart. Creation is becoming undone. Remember, at the beginning of the story, we have God ordering creation, structuring everything is is um, in its place. But now everything is falling apart. So when did this already happen? I talked about this last week. This happened at Jesus's crucifixion. The sun was blotted out from the third hour to the sixth hour. That's nine a.m. to uh, 6 p- um, nine a.m. to noon. Uh, there was an earthquake at Jesus's resurrection. And so these are signs of God's judgment being poured out on Jesus. But a final, fuller judgment is still to come, right? And so what we, what we discovered then is that the day of the Lord becomes stretched out. Maybe I should have ministry... Ministry of Jesus, right? It, it's inaugurated, it begins, and it's going to end climactically um, in his second coming. And so here we are, right? This is a two thousand year period. Is the day of the Lord, and we're in the midst of it, right? And so we're still waiting for this final climactic end, when the sun and the moon will be darkened, the earth there will be earthquakes. Um, any quick questions here before we move on? So I'm, I'm still trying to prove this. So if you're unpersuaded, let me let me persuade you as we go through the class. Yes, John. So the army is a symbol of God's judgment. Um. Yes. So in Joel, he's talking about this immediate army that's going to come, that's going to sweep through the land and cause destruction and devastation. Um, but there is going to be a and then the the invading army is sort of a picture and sign of God's future destruction that's about to come. Does that make sense? Okay. It's not going to necessarily be. Well, we'll see. We'll see that it is. It is an army, but not necessarily like the army that invaded the land of Israel. Okay. All right. So, in response to this, God calls us to repentance. God calls His people to repentance. Verse twelve. Yet, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, 13, and rend your hearts and not your garments. I really like that expression, to rend, to tear your hearts and not your garments. Um, in the ancient world, you would tear your garments as a sign of distress and, and um, remorse. But God says, I don't want you to just do it for outward show, but I want you to have a genuine, heartfelt repentance. So tear your hearts, right? Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's Exodus uh, 36, right? Uh, When Moses appears uh, before God and he relents over disaster, verse 14. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So I just want to focus very briefly on verse 14. It says, Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? Um, Sometimes people are a little bit bothered and disturbed when they read that. Um, And it does not mean that it is doubtful or unknowable that God will forgive. Uh, The expression here is a Hebrew um, idiom expressing divine freedom and divine sovereignty. It means that God is not obligated to forgive us. Um, You you actually see a very similar statement in Jonah, chapter 3, verse 9. If you guys remember the story of Jonah, Jonah the prophet goes to Nineveh, and then um, he's like, (laughs) I forget how many days, but in 30 days, right, the judgment of God, the wrath of God is going to come down. Amazingly, the entire city is cut to the heart. They all repent. The king of Nineveh then says this. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So it's not saying... Who knows in the sense of, we don't know whether God will actually um, do this, but it's, it's, it's an expression of humility. It's an expression that God is not obligated. But we do know that God's character is merciful and full of compassion, as it says in verse 13. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let me let me go on, verse 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. So what Joel is calling for is the whole nation to gather together in an act of repentance. This is corporate repentance, not just individuals. Everyone has to join in, even the children, even nursing infants. (laughs) Let the bridegroom leave his room. Let the bride and the bride her chamber. So in the ancient world, the most important, the most momentous, the most happiest event in your life was your marriage day. And um, even your marriage is not, even your wedding day is not a sufficient excuse. The call for repentance is that important, it's that urgent. Verse 17: Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So that's interesting that um, that when Joel and when the priests are appealing to God for his grace and for his forgiveness, they say, why should the people say, where is their God? So I think that's a really interesting way that the Bible is showing us how we are to appeal for God's forgiveness. It's not based on our worthiness or our merit, but it's based on the unbreakable promise that God gave to Abraham and his glory among the nations because God promises that God will um, make Abraham a blessing to all the nations so then so then the nations cannot say where is her God you know has God forsaken his people? Um, let's go on to the next section verse 18. So this then we in verse 18 is the second half of Joel right So I said the first half is doom. It's bad news, bad news plus weeping and wailing and repentance. And then starting in verse 18 is unrelenting good news, all right? So verse 18, God will defeat the invaders. Then, notice the word then. (laughs) Then signals a shift in attitude. It says, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So God's jealousy here is not sort of... um, uh, an insecure jealousy, um, but it's the jealousy of a husband for his wife. Um, he, 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 he's jealous for us. Verse 19, The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So remember that um, the curse, the consequence of disobedience was this massive famine because of this locust, locust plague. But God is going to send grain, wine, and oil. Verse 20, I will remove the northerner far from you. The northerner here is this massive northern army, this invading army that was going to sweep through the land and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. So God says he's going to overthrow the invaders and provide relief for his people. Verse 21, Verse 21, Um, God furthermore says, I'm going to restore the land. Remember, the land has been devastated. Remember, uh, he said, uh, Joel speaks of how the land was like the Garden of Eden, but now has become a desolate wasteland. Verse 21, fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. So this imagery here is really amazing, right? Pastures will be green, trees will bear fruit, there'll be abundant rain, overflow of harvest, and um, to us, City dwellers, urban folks, this maybe doesn't mean as much to us, uh, but to an agricultural society, to farmers who basically their livelihood is their crops, these were words of life and prosperity. And so this is the reversal of the curse, this is the healing of the land. Verse 25 I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent among you. So I want to pause here for a moment and talk about this, verse 25, because I think it's really amazing. So what does God say? God says, I will restore to you the years that you lost. What is God saying? He's saying that in the end, nothing will be lost. He's saying everything will be made up for. That somehow, in the end, God's people will be made whole that all the suffering and the evil will somehow become undone, that mourning will turn into dancing and joy. This is a major theme in, in the Bible's eschatology. And what the Bible says is that the end will not just be happy in spite of the sadness, right? So it's not like, oh, you know, God's people went through this turmoil and tra- uh, travail and distress, but then there's happiness. And somehow the happiness will compensate for the sadness, but the Bible says that it's because of the sadness that God's people will be will be happy. That somehow all the sadness and the suffering will be woven into the tapestry of our future joy. Does that make sense? Not in spite of, but because of the happiness. Um, there's, there's language in um, the New Testament and also in the prophets where it talks about the birth pangs of our suffering is producing this joy. So... Um, so if if, if you're a mother, <laughs> you went through labor pains, right? Your labor pains were intense. Were I'm speaking of it theoretically, right? But your labor pains were intense. It was severe. But those labor pains were not um, disconnected to your baby. They were producing your baby. They were creating your baby, right? And so that's the language. Listen to, for example... 2 Corinthians 4.17. By, uh, so so uh, I remember when uh, Christina was going through, my wife, Christina was going through labor pains. She, she told me that it was intensely painful, but she said part of the way that it helped her to get through it is every time she felt labor contractions, she knew that it was producing her, her baby, right? And so it gives you this great sense of hope. It's not meaningless pain. It's not arbitrary, random pain. It's meaningful pain, right? Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.17. Paul writes, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let me read it again and then provide some commentary. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So what is Paul saying? First of all, when he says this light momentary affliction he is not belittling the pain and suffering of this age. He's saying it's light and momentary compared to this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Right. So he's speaking in a comparison language. He's saying that the sufferings of this age are great. They're intense. They bring us to our knees and they cause us to weep and sorrow. But when you compare it to the eternal glory that is to come, When you're in the future glory, you will look back and you will realize it is light and it was momentary. And then listen to what Paul says. He says, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us. The word preparing means it's it's producing, it's creating, it's part of the fabric of the future joy. The eternal, forever future joy that we will enjoy is because of the sufferings and the sadness that we experience in the here and now. And so that gives us great hope that gives us great comfort. Um, that helps us to endure. That helps us to persevere. Uh, any questions on this? No? On. All right. Let me let me press forward then. Verse twenty-six. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So if you look at verse 26, it says that on the day of the Lord, God's people will eat and be satisfied. Do you guys remember when this happened in Jesus' ministry? What event in Jesus' ministry sort of evoked this this imagery? Yeah. Do you remember what happened when Jesus fed the 5,000? The people say, woohoo, free lunch. How did they respond to that? They were overwhelmed. They were excited. And what did they try to do to Jesus? They tried to crown him king right there and then. Do you know why? Because they're like, it's happening. All of the promises, all of the, all, of, all, all of the expectations that we've been having, right? It excited all of these eschatological, meaning end times, expectations. And therefore, what were they expecting Jesus furthermore to do? Because they're like, it's happening, it's beginning. The northerner will be defeated. Who who would be the northerners in this situation? The Romans. There will be a restoration of the land. This is it's happening. And then when Jesus was crucified on the cross, do you then therefore understand the shock, the epic disappointment? And the that Jesus' followers experienced, it's like, this doesn't make any sense. What is going on, right? Um, let's go on, verse 27. More blessings. Verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and there is not none else, and my people shall never again be put to shame. So this is the greatest blessing. Not the land, not the invaders being expelled, but that God will draw near to his people. And this leads us to this future day of the Lord that Joel therefore looks forward to. Right? So there's immediate relief, but then there's a future relief. Verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterwards. So that's a time indicator telling us that Joel now is thinking about a distant, far future event. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes." So, so Joel says there is a future day of the Lord coming, right? Um, and this is the climactic ending of human history, right? This is the fulfillment of all God's promises. And on the day of the Lord, it will be that God's spirit will be poured out. So this is the most famous passage in Joel. This is uh, quoted um, extensively in Acts chapter 2. And Joel here is talking about the same thing that Ezekiel and Jeremiah is talking about, which is the New Covenant, So the old covenant, which was given at Mount Sinai to Moses, is obey and you will live, disobey and you will die. And that covenant failed because it failed to produce holiness in God's people. All it did actually was elicit, incite disobedience and rebellion. So the new covenant is not just going to be this external law. It's not just going to be stone tablets. God's law is somehow going to go inside God's people and it's going to be this inner motivation And God is going to do it through His Spirit. So, Ezekiel 36. We looked at this last week, but I just wanted to revisit it very briefly. Uh, Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. So, this is really an amazing promise, that the day of the Lord, this eschatological end to... Um, human history, is going to be an age of the Spirit. It's going to be Spirit-filled, sons and daughters, young and old, even on servants. The Spirit will come on God's people indiscriminately, great and small, because in the Old Testament, God's Spirit only came periodically, temporarily, on leaders, like Samson, like David, like uh, Saul, and so forth. This is why, by the way, David in this uh, famous psalm says, uh, take not your spirit from me. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about God's uh, temporary spirit of empowerment and leadership, but rather than the Spirit coming down like that on God's people in the Old Testament, you know, for special purposes, temporarily, now in the new covenant, God's Spirit is going to come in fullness. It's going to be poured out on all God's people fully without ever being withdrawn, right? So this is an amazing thing. This is finally fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, Peter quotes this entire passage. It's in fact one of the longest passages quoted in the New Testament of the Old, right? But notice, but but not notice, but uh, but you'll have to just believe me. <laughs> but um, in Acts chapter 2, Peter changes the words a little bit, right? And I think the, the change is very significant because at the be- in verse 28, the Joel text says, it shall come to pass afterwards. But in Peter, he changes that because it doesn't make any sense anymore to say, and it shall come to pass afterward. So Peter changes it to, and in the last days, it shall be. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, That the day of the Lord that Joel is speaking of is upon us. That we are now inside the day of the Lord. We're inside this last climactic act, the last event of redemptive history. It has already begun. And remember, if you throw that in conjunction with Malachi 4, verse 4 and 5, right before the great day of the Lord comes, I will send Elijah the prophet, Um, the Gospel accounts cite that passage. It quotes Malachi chapter 4, and it says, John the Baptist is he. So if John the Baptist is Elijah the prophet, who will precede the great day of the Lord, that's Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is the day of the Lord, right? So if that's that's what's happening, then why (laughs) why this? Right? Why is there this Elongated delay, because if Jesus came in the day of the Lord, what do we expect? We expect it all to happen: restoration of the land, defeat of the invaders, um, uh, the healing and restoration of God's people, judgment day. Everything, everything should just happen. Boom. But it doesn't. There's like a pause. Right? The day of it's like the day of the Lord is happening, and then we're like stuck at noon. Um, so why hasn't history ended? Why has history continued? And Second Peter addresses this very question. I actually was going to print the entire chapter because he addresses it at length, but I've just shortened it to two verses for the sake of time. Peter's response is this. Why the delay? He says, first of all, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, what is Peter saying? Why does God delay? Why is there this 2,000 year pause in the day of the Lord? And his answer is it's to allow for the repentance of the nations, right? It's, the, the day of the Lord is paused so that you and I, everyone in this room, can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God pauses because otherwise there would be judgment day and there would be an accounting and everyone who does not call on the name of the Lord would perish.
1: Do you think that that, that uh, implies that there's a progression where humanity
0: becomes more repentant over time? Um, so will this sort of pause in the day of the Lord um, be marked by some kind of progress, right? We, we talked about this a little bit um, in the uh, last class if you, look at, um, if you look at the millennium right? I, I can't recall now which chapter is, is the millennium is it Revelation 18? anyways mm-hmm. uh, I think Revelation 20 I, I think it is Revelation 20 it talks about the millennium and the millennium is this thousand year period that will mark the end of human history and my argument is that the millennium, the day of the Lord synonymous, same thing Right? And if you look at the millennium, Satan is bound and in chains, and then you see God's people advancing, spreading throughout the earth. So I think that's true. That's, that's what's exactly what's happening. The church is victoriously advancing throughout the world. Satan is bound. Um, but there's going to be a climactic battle in the end. We'll, we'll, we'll look at that in Joel. But it's also true that Jesus talks about, before the coming of the day of the Lord, Revelation talks about it. What's going to happen? There's going to be antichrists. There's going to be a great deception. The beast, the prostitute, all of these really, um, really uh, uh, dire, vile imagery about uh, apostasy. So I think they're both simultaneously true. It's going to be. It's going to be this progressively like. It's sort of like, think of it like this. It's like a musical piece where, where you have this tension. And then that tension lasts for two thousand years. This this harmonic tension, and then it's going to be finally resolved at a second coming. Does that make sense, or does that answer your question? So, I have a question. yeah. So the two thousand years is just God giving everybody the last chance at repentance. Yeah, He's gathering in His people. So we are the history has in effect ended. There is no further redemptive history. There's no further development. So, this final this this final stage, God has paused, and he's waiting for the ingathering of his people. Um, let's look at verse 31. The sun turned to darkness. Oh, by the way, I know that when I say the millennium, we're in the millennium. This is the millennium. That's also kind of a bombshell statement. I'm not going to substantiate it, because that would take a whole nother class. But... Um, but it makes sense if, 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 if you understand uh, everything else. All right. But we'll talk about it. That'll be another class. There's so many issues, right? Um, verse 31. The sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood. So that's in verse uh, 31, right? So this is judgment language. And I, and I want to read you Revelation chapter 6 to show you that, that actually Revelation quotes a lot of the prophets. And one of the prophets it quotes from the most is Joel. So this is a quotation of Joel, listen to, or or, or evoking Joel. Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The skies vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and you can stand. All right, so this is, this is judgment language again. Uh, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Uh, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall, shall be those whom the Lord calls. So uh, Joel says that on Judgment Day, on this day of the Lord, everyone who calls on Christ, on the name of Christ, will be saved. And so I, I just wanted to comment very briefly on this, that this reminds us that salvation is by grace, right? Because notice Joel doesn't say, everyone who does great feats of faith. Everyone who does great deeds of morality will be saved. He says, all you have to do is call on the name of the Lord, name of Christ. Um, it reminds me of the thief on the cross. Yes? Well, Pastor,
1: um, can, can, can you help me with this? Uh, I, I know there's books out there that talk about you know, signs. Of, uh, is this a sign we, we should be looking for or gives us a hint of Judgment Day? Right, so, know, so... Because so, so, they talk about the... Uh, we we had four uh, blood blood moons that passed, right? And two was just recently. I think it was last year, right? And I don't know when the next one is.
0: <laughs> so so Jesus says, you know, these are the signs. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Yeah. Um, what I would the the way I'm reading all of these signs is that it's not pointing to a specific calendar date, but it's all uh, connected to the day of the Lord, which we are already in. And therefore, there will be signs all throughout this period.
1: Right. But there's going to be clouds and there's going to be, it just seems like that
0: judgment day that we're... we're so we're to, in it. We're, we're in it, but... We're in it. And and then, it also speaks of Jesus' second coming as coming like a thief in the night. Yeah. Right? And a thief in the night... Um, I've never experienced a thief in the night, <laughs> but supposedly you, know, you cannot you doing cannot doing it. anticipate it in the sense that you cannot know when he's going to do it, right? So it comes upon you suddenly, right? So what that means a thief in the night is that you cannot anticipate it in the sense that you cannot say, "Aha, it's going to happen within this year. It's going to happen within this ten year period." Right. But the signs are there. The signs will be there. Though. Yeah, the signs are there, and so what? That, so what, so Jesus says, "I'm coming soon," meaning at any moment, Mm -hmm. meaning constant vigilance, right? Now, a lot of people say, well, it failed, because uh, the people in this generation thought any moment, thief in the night. But Jesus didn't come, so obviously Scripture was wrong, Jesus was wrong. I think when Jesus says any moment, he's saying every generation needs to be vigilant. Every generation needs to live as if the day of the Lord could be at any moment. Our king will return. That gives us great hope, but it also gives us great um, moral fortitude. So you don't live in dissipation. You don't live in you know excess. You're constantly living in preparation for this and for the king to return. All right. Um, I, can,
1: can, can, I, can I ask you another
0: question? Yes, follow-up question.
1: There's not a follow-up, but I'm trying to put this all together. Okay. Okay. Um, I know you understand uh, Calvin's uh, tulip very well, um, and in the Bible, uh, God calls us repentance from Genesis all the way to uh, Revelation. Um, why? Why is that?
0: Why repentance? Yes. Um.
1: I mean, because I'm not sure about. Protestant, I mean, uh, not Presbyterian, Pre- but I believe that it, it's, it's once saved always saved. Is that is that am, am I correct to
0: say that? Uh, once saved always saved. It it has a catchy ring to it. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily. Okay. Uh, how about uh, pre-forgiven
1: sins then? Say that again. Uh, pre-forgiven sins like your your past, present, and future sins are forgiven. Is that? Yeah, that's is true. Is that correct? So yeah. W- w- why this repentance? Uh this repentance?
0: <laughs> so repentance... You understand my question? My yeah. sense. I mean, yeah. So this would be a good discussion for another class, but let me give you my very quick answer. Yeah, I right? like that. Um, my very quick answer is that we need to get away from this concept that um, you're saved in a single moment. Uh, if you look at the language of Scripture, you're saved in a moment, yes, in the past, but you're being saved right now. Mm-hmm. And you will be saved in the future. So salvation is both past, it's progressive, and it's a future event.
1: Yeah. The reason why I'm asking is because I have I know people who believe that once they're saved and they continue to sin, mm-hmm. uh, they don't repent. They think they're you know. Yeah. So say, so so a, so, a, so very, we so you I need to that have a full
0: understanding of salvation. Salvation is past, prog- present, <laughs> and, and future, which means that you're always <laughs> repenting. Right, and repentance is the means by which you experience salvation, and it's the means by which you're continuing to be saved.
1: Is that for a willful sin or sins you don't even know about? Do you would you ask would you repent on those uh, sins that you're not even aware about? Ah, uh, that be something that's necessary. Let's just say.
0: Uh,
1: I I don't know. We'll talk about it more after. Yeah. Okay. That'd be. That'd be <laughs>
0: Thank you. Those are, those are great questions. All right. Um, so let me go on. Verse, I, I, I have lost my place. Oh, shall we go to chapter 3? Chapter 3, all right. So, uh, judgment on the nations. Verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and in my heritage Israel. So Joel here is talking about Judgment Day. And if you listen, he's talking about Judgment Day as a battle, right? He says he's going to bring them down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. By the way, Jehoshaphat is not an actual geographical place name. So um, it's symbolic language, I think. Jehoshaphat literally means Yahweh has judged. And the reason why you bring them into a valley is because valleys were places where you fight battles. Um, It's hard to fight battles on mountains or hills, So it's this battle, right? Because, and let me continue on. Because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it, right? This is the indictment against the nations. Verse four, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon? Tyre and Sidon, by the way, are cities um, in modern-day Lebanon, so this would be Phoenicia. What are you to me, Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia, Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Let me just dwell on that language a little bit. God says, I will return your payment on your own head. So I think it's interesting that God describes judgment in these terms, in in, um, this concept of reciprocity. And what that means is that God's judgment is not arbitrary, but it's just and fitting. It's never disproportionate or excessive but it's always suitable and right um, to, to the sins committed. Um, there's an interesting passage in Romans chapter 1 where Paul talks about how God is going to give up his, his wrath and his judgment is that God's going to give up people to their sins, meaning the picture of judgment that the Bible gives us is not God sort of imposing a punishment that's sort of disconnected from the evil that they've done, but God is releasing people uh, rebels who want to run away from him and they're running towards sin, and God's going to let go and give us what we want. And so that judgment is forever pursuing and forever embracing our sin and, and our rebellion. Um, verse 5, For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temple. temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Um, so, so, So he's talking about how Um, this indictment against the Gentiles, against the Gentile nations, is that they sold God's people as slaves to the Greeks. That's important. Um, Not that important, but I'll refer to it again. Verse 7, Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. So I just want to focus very briefly on verse 8. I will sell them to the Sabaeans. By the way, um, prophetic literature is just rich with imagery. And one of my great regrets is that I actually wanted to do a verse-by-verse exegesis and unpack all the imagery, but I couldn't. But I just wanted to do this one. So this is poetic ju- justice. Because remember, the, 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 the Jews who do not love to see. If you, if you read the Old Testament, you should know this they never talk about the sea well. And every time they talk about the sea, there's a storm, right? So they don't love the sea, but they're sold to a seafaring people far away. So what is the judgment then? Tyre and Sidon and Philistia, they're all along the coast. They're seafaring people. They're going to be in, told, in turn sold to the Sabaeans. You know who the Sabaeans are? They're Arabs. So they're going to be sold to a distant desert tribe. So it's, it's this reciprocity principle, right? Verse 9 I thought that was neat. Okay, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. So it's interesting that Judgment Day, God says, consecrate for war. And what this tells us is that Judgment Day is this climactic... Final battle between the unbelieving nations and God. This is the battle of Armageddon in Revelation uh, Revelation 16. This is this this great battle that the prophets speak of constantly. Let me just read to you Zephaniah chapter 1. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trumpet blasts. And battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements, right? And so, there's 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 combat language, there's there's battlefield language, and the question is, why is Judgment Day a battlefield? Isn't that mixing metaphors, right? Um, because what is Judgment Day? Judgment Day is a courtroom scene, a judge is sitting and declaring the guilty, but a battlefield is like two armies amassing and 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 combating each other. And the answer is that they're one and the same because in the Bible, Satan and unbelievers are at war against God. I'm actually going to preach about this a little bit next week so uh, I can substantiate it a little bit more then. But that God's judgment is that he meets evildoers in the battlefield because they're at war with him, and his judgment is that he defeats them. Um, Hopefully that makes sense. (laughs) Uh, Verse 11 Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, um, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. So again, this imagery of judgment and battle are intermingled. Um, You see that, for example, in Revelation as well, Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. This is describing Jesus, by the way. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, notice, he judges and makes war. So judgment and battlefield imagery are intermingled. They're they're interconnected. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. So the imagery here is that evil has reached its fullness and limit. Uh, It says, the wine press is full. This is echoed in Revelation 14. By the way, you know that expression, the grapes of wrath, the novel by Steinbeck? This is where it comes from, by the way, which is that um, evil has reached its fullness, and God is like, it's harvest time. It's a little bit like um, a sardonic, um, uh, ironic language, right? See, God has a sense of humor. Verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near, In the valley of decision, the word decision, by the way, is not man's decision, but God's decision. Um, The word decision there doesn't mean like, hmm, what should I decide? But it means more like determination, verdict. Verse 15, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Verse 16, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Um, But the Lord is a refuge to his people. Refuge means safe, safe shelter a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And so again, we see what we've talked about before. Judgment and salvation occur on the same day. They are two sides of the same coin. Uh, Judgment against the wicked nations is the salvation of God's people. So remember the Red Sea crossing, right? God's people are escaping Pharaoh and his chariots. And they cross through the Red Sea safely on dry land, and then the the Pharaoh's army comes in after them, and then they're drowned and then they're destroyed. So the same act of destruction of the of the of the wicked nations is God's is uh, the salvation of God's people. Last section, I made it. All right, five minutes, seven minutes, verse eighteen. So this so this is the climactic end. This is the crescendo. This is. Are you excited? Verse eighteen. In that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Stream beds, by the way, the word there is um, the word wadi. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel or the, the Middle East, but does anyone know what wadis are? I guess you see it also in the southwest. They're basically dry river beds. So. When does the dry river bed become filled? When it rains, right. So, this is amazing imagery. Most of the times they're dry, but all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come from the house of the Lord, and the water, the valley of Shittim. Israel shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness. These are unbelieving nations, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations, I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the for the Lord dwells in Zion. So the ending of, of Joel's prophecy, this great comfort is that there's going to be a renewal of all creation. Scripture speaks of this constantly, all throughout the Bible. Our final destination, I remember I said, is not heaven but it's the new heavens and the new earth, new creation. Revelation 21, listen to this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The word new there means renewed. It does not mean new as in completely different. Like when you say, I got a new car, it means, oh, I jumped my old car, and I got a new, brand new car. That's not scripture's language. Think of it like this. I'm a new person. That doesn't mean you destroyed yourself, and then now you're completely, radically, you know, you know a clone or something. It means that you've been renewed, you've been restored, you've you've been made better, right? So the earth is going to be renewed. It says new heavens and new earth. Heavens, by the way, is not talking about heaven where God dwells, but the skies, the starry host. So basically all the physical creation, the whole universe is going to be renewed. And I want to end by reading to you Isaiah 55. I think one of the most beautiful passages. um, Let me me read to you. Isaiah 55. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So this is the language of, of creation being renewed. And if you look at Isaiah 55, basically um, it speaks of the world waking up, that the world is only now a shadow of, a, of what it will be. It talks about the mountains singing. It talks about the trees clapping their hands. And so in a sense, what we see right now is inanimate creation. What we see right now is a, a, a dim shadow of what the world will become. And if the future world, the trees will clap their hands and the mountains will sing, what does that mean for us? What will we become? Right? It's unimaginable. Um, th- this joy, this glory that is to come for us. So I'm not. I'm going to skip. Rome, well, I'll read Romans eight um, and leave it at that. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits, right? So it's it's, it's not just human beings, but the whole physical reality and the world. The, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So right now, we're in childbirth. But there's a baby coming. <laughs> the baby is the new heavens and the new earth. It's this renewed creation. Um, any, any, any questions? Uh, can I ask a question regarding yes. the indwelling uh, of the Holy Spirit you mentioned yes.
1: earlier? Um, uh, when Jesus was baptized, yes. uh, was that the first time the indwelling of the Spirit happened?
0: Um, I mean, Jesus is always in fellowship in the triune God um so the the spirit descending is you're right it's like evoking the promise that you see in the Old Testament This is going to be a unique age of the spirit it's also a sign of approval that God is saying you are my you're my uh, son I'm pleased with you is that
1: well I, I guess I guess when it goes, gets down to so the, so so uh, uh, Jesus'
0: baptism isn't where Jesus then, so, so there's this whole long theological dis- discussion called adoptionism. But basically, it's not that Jesus somehow uh, acquired a new status.
1: Well, I'm asking, I'm asking if the the Spirit indwelled in Jesus because it said it made a abode in him. Does oh, it, okay. So that's that's what I'm getting at. All oh, right. Yes.
0: Um, and then if you read in Mark, it says that the Spirit then thrust them out into the to the to the wilderness. So it's both yes and no. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Um, I just I just want something. Right, so 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 in a sense, Jesus was always in fellowship in the triune Godhead, right? Um, but then at his baptism, he it's the beginning it's the formal beginning of his ministry. And so the spirit comes and it thrusts him out into the wilderness and he has to face the temptations with Satan. Does that make sense? Uh, So it's it's I I could talk to you about a little bit more later on, okay. Any other questions? All right, let's conclude with prayer. Um, Almighty God, we thank, you for, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you for this great um, encouragement in the book of Joel, um, that you love us, that you're going to rescue us, um, that it's going to be the renewal of all things. We pray that it would give us great hope. Uh, in this life, there is many troubles, and uh, there is much distress. And we pray that you would sustain us, and um, and help us to persevere, and not to lo- not to give up, but to cry out to you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.